0: You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at redeemerbiblechurch.com. Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Right now, I have a four year old, a five year old, a ten year old, and a thirteen year old living in my house. And if you're visiting, don't be confused. Those are my children. What's interesting, and I'm sure not at all surprising, is that the 10 and 13 year old aren't nearly as dependent on Karen and I as the 4 and 5 year old are. Now, sometimes they seem like they are, but the reality is that as children grow older, they become more aware of who they are. They, they mature physically and cognitively. And as that happens, they, they become more and more independent. They, know, they don't need mom and dad like they did when they were small children. In fact, it even happens earlier sometimes than you think. My five-year-old son told me the other night, I said, come on, buddy, let's get ready uh, for bed. And he said, dad... I got this. Okay. Now, those moments you realize this process that your children are going through will lead them at some point under normal conditions to reach a point when they're 18 or in some cases 20 or 25 where they move out and begin to fend for themselves. In a very real sense, they become totally independent of their parents. But, brothers and sisters, do you realize that the exact opposite is true in the Christian life? The exact opposite is true in the Christian life. As we mature, as Christ's followers, we don't become more independent of God. No, as we grow in Christ, we realize more and more just how utterly and totally dependent upon him we actually are. In fact, Job reminds us that we are dependent upon God for our next breath. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Over the next two weeks, as we prepare for and begin a new year, and before we jump back into the book of Acts, we're going to focus our attention on our profound need for God. Scripture will remind us that God is the source of all things, and without him we have nothing, which means that we are all desperately and totally dependent upon God. This morning, our study will focus on Matthew chapter 6, verses 11 through 15, but let's take a moment to consider what's established in verses 9 and 10, the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer begins, Our Father in heaven, reminding us that we pray to God because we know that He alone can answer. We bring Him our needs because we know that He alone can meet them. We beg Him to intervene because we know absolutely nothing can stop Him. Our Father is in heaven heaven where he sees everything and hears everyone. The psalmist writes, the Lord looks down from heaven, he sees all the children of man, from where he sits enthroned he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds." from his heavenly throne, God rules over all creation with absolute power and authority. Have you ever paused to consider how thoroughly biblical and exceedingly encouraging the lyrics are to this wonderful hymn? This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hand the wonders wrought. This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. God is holy, set apart. He is the sovereign and eternal king who will return and establish his forever kingdom. And yet, for every believer, he is our father. So Jesus reminds us that we are praying not only to a sovereign ruler, but a loving father. It's with this in mind that we come to verse 11. In fact, you'll notice the transition in verses 9 and 10. Our primary concern is God's glory, God's reign, and God's will. Our attention is directed Godward. Now, in light of the full splendor and majesty of God, we take thought for our own needs and the needs of others. And this makes sense, doesn't it? It's only in reference to God that we can truly understand who we are and what we really need. And so we pray like this. Again, verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In verses 11 through 15, we are confronted with our desperate need. We are dependent upon God for provision, for pardon, and for protection, which, if you think about it, is a way of saying that we need God in every way and for everything. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote that in these three simple petitions, quote, all our greatest needs are summed up. In such a small compass, our Lord has covered the whole life of the believer in every respect. Lloyd-Jones describes precisely what we find in our study this morning. So first, we are dependent upon God for his provision. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. At first glance, this petition seems quite simple, and of course, in a sense, it is. This is why Christians throughout the ages have offered thanks for their food. It's a simple way of acknowledging God's provision. We offer him thanks because we believe that what sits at the center of our table is a gift from his hand. In fact, thanking God for our food points to the greater reality of what we believe, that everything— Everything we have is from God's hand. James writes, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The Apostle Paul reminded the Corinthian believers in the midst of their division and difficulty, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Brothers and sisters, how easily we drift into a sort of spiritual slumber, where first we stop acknowledging God's loving provision, but then over time we subtly begin to think that we have what we have because of the work of our own hands. Because we have done this or that, our thinking very easily and yet radically changes from humility and gratitude for God's good gifts to a sense of arrogant entitlement. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, sure, but I have put in the time and I've made the good decisions, and I've worked long hours to advance my career, and now I enjoy and rightly have what I have earned. Now, maybe you would never say that out loud, but is that the way you think? Consider the careful choice of words in the two texts I read just a minute ago every every good gift comes from above coming down from the father or what do you have that you did not receive the implied and obvious answer is nothing nothing friends be careful A low view of God will lead to an exalted and puffed up view of yourself, which will in turn lead to an idolatrous view of your stuff. When your position and your possessions are viewed primarily as a result of your own abilities, your own skill, your own effort. You will cherish, protect, and give inordinate time and energy to the protection and cultivation of your stuff because your possessions will have become your identity. This is who you are. You'll look at what you've collected and it will give you a false sense of worth and meaning. But here's the flip side. A high view of God and an understanding as understanding that God is the giver of all things will lead to an accurate view of yourself as an undeserving recipient of God's grace in 10,000 different ways. And friend, this will lead you to view your possessions as a means of enjoying God and serving God and blessing others. You will acknowledge him as the giver. And you will hold all that you have received from him with open hands. It's not yours. It's his to be used for his glory and for his fame. You will not boast in what you have because ultimately you had nothing to do with it. God in his grace has given you everything. And if he so chose with one word, he could take it all away. Now, when we pray and we ask God for our daily bread, it is generally an acknowledgement of his sovereign control over everything in our lives. The end of the year is an interesting time for ministries. It's a really interesting time for missions organizations. So this week I was texting Darren Asking him, I said, how's the fundraising going for Training Leaders International? And he gave me a little update. And I stopped and I prayed. I prayed because I know God alone has the ability to answer Darren's request. And I prayed that God would drive Darren to his knees in humble dependence upon God, crying out to God to do what only he can do. This is how these truths fit together. But I want to draw your attention to specifically what we find here. And Jesus is making a very specific point beyond simply encouraging us to generally acknowledge God. Look again at verse uh, verse 9. Give us this day, or 11, excuse me, give us this day our daily bread. The word translated daily is a word that is only found here and it conveys a very important truth It carries with it this thought, for the coming day. For the coming day. So here's what Jesus is saying. When you pray, Father, give us this day our daily bread. If you are praying that prayer in the morning... You are asking simply for the food and provision you need for the rest of that day. If you were to pray this prayer at night, you'd be asking for enough food for the next day. In other words, this is not a general prayer that God would provide all the food you will ever need. It's a very specific prayer. Father, give us what we need today. Now, why is this important? Well, Henry Morris writes, this prayer, listen carefully, this prayer encourages a continuing dependence on God. This is not a situation in which the disciple asks God for a supply for a lengthy period after which he can go on for some time in forgetfulness of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, please get this. As children of God, we should be so aware of our utter dependence upon God, so aware of who God is and who we are that we are kept in a place of constant prayer. God, I need you today. I need you today. I need you to provide today. And I'll be back on my knees tonight in desperate dependence upon you for tomorrow. Friends, this is about more than food, isn't it? Without God's grace and mercy every day, we would all be undone. This is a gracious reminder just how desperate we are for God This reminds us of the refrain of that well-known hymn, I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour. Every hour, I need thee. Here's what happens to us far too often. We We have somehow disconnected God from normal daily life. We need him in crisis. We thank him when he provides something that's out of the ordinary, but we largely forget about him during the uneventful seasons of life. Jesus is reminding us here that without the kind and faithful provision of God, you and I wouldn't even have the food to put on our tables. No matter what your job is, no matter how how much you've accomplished. At the end of the day, friend, you have food on your table because God provided it. I think there is both an encouragement and a warning here. The encouragement is to remember that God provides. He loves to provide for his children. In fact, Jesus says this in the very next chapter, and we'll look at these words more next week. Matthew chapter 7, verse 9. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Friends, this is an encouragement to deep gratitude for the goodness and love of your Heavenly Father seen every single day in something as simple as the food on your table. But there's also a warning against calloused thanklessness and sinful self sufficiency. Right? A lack of prayer reveals ingratitude. It also reveals this. I got this. I can do this on my own. Don Carson writes, Our ingratitude is an insult to God. Our ingratitude is an insult to God. Thanklessness is an affront to him, We have taken his gifts for granted, and then when they begin to dry up, we complain and call into question the very existence of this benevolent God. When we ask our Father for our daily bread, we are acknowledging our total dependence upon him, and we are acting in faith, believing that he is exceedingly good. What a wonderful and necessary reminder for each of us every single day. So first, we are dependent upon God for his provision. Now look with me at verse 12. We are dependent upon God for his pardon. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's important to note initially that this is the only petition that is singled out for further comment. So Jesus adds what we find in verses 14 and 15 to what's stated in verse 12. And this is what he adds. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now what Jesus has in view here is not financial debt, but sin. Debt is simply a metaphor for offenses which need to be forgiven. In fact, remember, remember that we are bringing this petition to God, and we are asking for His forgiveness for the debt we have against Him. Friends, what is the great debt we bear before God? It is our sin. Therefore, our need is for forgiveness. So there is certainly a straightforward reminder here that God alone can forgive our greatest debt. It's only through Jesus' death and resurrection that anyone here can be forgiven by God. That's the foundation for understanding what's being taught here. But as we look carefully at these three verses, there are several different directions we could go in seeking to understand what Jesus is explaining. But let me try first to encapsulate his main point, okay? Simply put, Jesus is teaching us that forgiveness is reciprocal. The one who's been forgiven must forgive. So in verse 12, we ask God to forgive our sin debt against him, for he alone can forgive us. But we could... Easily get confused because it almost seems as if Jesus is teaching us that God will only forgive us if we forgive those who have sinned against us. But wouldn't that be salvation on the basis of works? We forgive so that God will forgive us. Well, in seeking to answer this as clearly as possible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. In verses 23 through 35, Jesus offers a parable that will help us understand his main point in chapter 6. Matthew 18. Let's actually begin in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often... So a significantly smaller debt. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you, And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I hope you can see Jesus's point more clearly here, especially verses 32 and following. Look at them one more time. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? The emphasis in both of these texts is not on the order of forgiveness, but the attitude. Friends, if you have experienced the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ, if you declare that in Jesus God has canceled your debt and that he has done it all because of grace, not because of your own works or any merit of your own, if you say that you have received God's infinite love and eternal forgiveness in Christ and yet you are unwilling to forgive those who sin against you, then you ought to have no confidence at all that God will receive you on the last day as one of his own. We could say perhaps this is the most basic fruit of the Spirit's work in the life of a Christian, that you would forgive. Put another way, again, Don Carson writes powerfully, there is no forgiveness for this one who does not forgive. How could it be otherwise? His unforgiving spirit bears strong witness to the fact that he has never repented. Henry Morris adds, forgiveness is important for the followers of Jesus, whereas the nature of the offense committed against them is not. Jesus is saying that to fail to forgive others is to demonstrate that one has, listen to this, is to demonstrate that one has not felt the saving touch of God. Friends, an undeniable mark of the true child of God is an attitude and posture of forgiveness. Resentment, grudges, and bitterness are satanic and soul-destroying. But forgiveness is freeing. It's joy deepening and it's life-giving. We could rephrase Matthew six twelve this way. Father, forgive us our sin as we are constantly and lovingly forgiving those who sin against us. Brothers and sisters, our confidence in the pardon that Christ has secured for us will only deepen as we offer forgiveness to those who sin against us. But this is no easy task, is it? It's no easy task to forgive those who sin against you. In fact, you could say that this exposes our desperate need for God. And our desperate need for his grace. And so, what do we do? We pray. We pray and we boldly ask God for what we need. We are dependent upon God for his provision, for his pardon. Now, look with me at verse 13. We are dependent upon God for his protection. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I've talked to people before that have struggled with this verse. It's confusing to them. Why would, why would we be asking God to not lead us into temptation? Doesn't James say in chapter 1, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. If God doesn't tempt anyone, why would we need to ask him not to lead us into temptation? I think Jesus is stating this petition in such a way that he's emphasizing, again, our utter dependence upon God in the face of constant temptation. In other words, it's not that God wants to lead us into temptation and we're asking him not to, but it's this, temptation is always present. Temptation is always present and the only way of avoiding it is if God will graciously and sovereignly lead us away from it. The only way anyone in this room ever resists temptation is by the power of God. It's not by your own creativity, your own ingenuity, your own strength, your own clever devices. You've tried all those things and you've failed. Friends, this is a plea for God's protection. Remember, we are living as citizens of God's kingdom in a world where sin and wickedness is everywhere, and yet God has not called us to some monastic lifestyle, hiding in caves, terrified of having any contact with sin or sinners, which, of course, would not solve the problem anyway. No, God wants us in the world involved in our communities, building redemptive relationships, publicly declaring the infinite value of Jesus. And as we take the gospel to those who need it most, we will face temptation constantly. You know that. And our only hope for resisting temptation rests in God's abundant mercy. He... Must deliver us from evil. Now, in part, and of course, eternally through Christ. Now, clearly, this kind of an attitude requires that we take sin seriously that we believe sin is dangerous and destructive, that we are not dabbling with or entertaining wickedness. You and I will never cry out to God to keep us from temptation if we are regularly inviting temptation into our lives by the choices we make and the activities we engage in. Friends, if Jesus Christ himself is telling us to pray that God would keep us from temptation then that should tell us something about the seriousness and the accessibility of sin. It's everywhere, and it destroys. Now again, we are not called to hide away But we are called to arm ourselves, to guard our hearts, to saturate our minds with the truth of God's Word, to help each other out as members of the same faith family, to be on guard and beg God for His protection. John Piper so helpfully reminds us the greatest enemy, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison. But apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. Brothers and sisters, we need God's protection, and so we pray. And I would suggest that not only do we need to pray for God's protection personally, but we should actively be praying for each other. How encouraging and helpful would it be if you came on a Sunday morning and you knew that some brother or sister was going to pull you aside for two minutes and say, can I just pray for God's protection over you this week? And if you were going to do the same for someone else. We need God's protection. And we need to realize that one of His greatest gifts to us in this fight is each other. Right, so maybe you're someone who is, is going through a very difficult time where you're acutely aware of the way the devil is tempting you and attacking you, and you feel alone. Why not go to one of your brothers or sisters and ask them, could you pray for me? Could you intercede on my behalf? Could you ask God to protect me? In closing, let me draw your attention to one more thing. When we consider the second part of our Lord's Prayer, what we've studied this morning, where where does this all lead us? When we think deeply about God's provision, his pardon, and his protection, it leads us straight to the cross, doesn't it? You see, God doesn't just give us daily bread, but he has given us the bread of life his son, Jesus. God God doesn't simply forgive our trespasses, but he has canceled our eternal sin debt through the death of his son, Jesus. And friends, God doesn't just protect us from sin and temptation, but he is sovereignly working in this very moment to keep us faithful until the very end. he will hold us fast. And this great saving work is accomplished through the bloody death and victorious resurrection of his Son Jesus. Scripture reminds us to pray because we are desperate for God. Do you realize what a wonderful gift that is? So God has created us, sin entered the world, we find ourselves in desperation, and God says, "Here, through Jesus Christ, you can access me anytime." And I have everything you need and I love to give good things to my children do you see why the devil would want to keep you from prayer do you, do you see why the devil would want to convince you personally why he would want to convince us as a church that we can do this on our own look how much talent and ability and, and money and prestige there is present we could do this Jesus says, no, you can't. You can't do any of it. But God in his power and in his love can do astonishing things in you and through you. So pray. Pray. Pray because you are desperate for God. The cross reminds us that he will not turn a deaf ear to our cries, because in Christ we know that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, he will also with him graciously give us all things. So as we close, I want us to read the Lord's prayer together. Okay, so... If you're not there already, turn to Matthew chapter 6, and we'll just read midway through verse 9, there down through the end of verse 13. And collectively, as a congregation purchased by the blood of Jesus, we cry out to our Father in desperate need, and we believe that He will hear us, and that He will answer. So together, let's pray, not simply because we're commanded to pray, but we need to pray. We need to pray. We want to pray. We want to cry out to you in our need. And what you have exposed to us this morning, Holy Spirit, through this text is we're never not in need Even the bread that sustains us physically through each day is a gift from your hand, Father. And we thank you. We thank you for your provision. We pray, Holy Spirit, that as we realize more and more all that we have received in Christ, the more generous we will become. That the more and more we understand the forgiveness we have received in Christ, the more forgiving we will be. The more and more we understand the gospel, Holy Spirit, I pray that we would understand in a fresh way both the seriousness of sin and the shocking reality of God's love and kindness and protection over us through His Word, through His Spirit, through His people. Father, fashion us by the power of the Holy Spirit into a praying people that perhaps above all else we would be known as a people desperate for you. Do in us, Holy Spirit, what we cannot manufacture on our own. Expose our need And lead us on our knees to the goodness and the grace that is so freely ours in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.